pictures of us for us? Pictures? Yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, I do. Although I think you're going to be disappointed, um, but we'll get there when we, when we get there. Um, I could have got you a picture of a flying saucer. I mean, you'd, you, there's some pretty weird ideas out there, but I decided not to. <laughs> well, back to the books of the Bible, and um, what section of the Old Testament are we in? Major prophets. How many of them are there? Five. Yeah, some of them being more major than others. Isaiah's big. Jeremiah's big. Lamentation's really small. Ezekiel's big, and Daniel's really pretty small. Um, but anyway, that's what makes up the five. So we're second to last. Ezekiel. Um, on our timeline, here on the left is Judah, and. You see where Jehoiakim began to reign in 598, ended in 597. Very short reign. Why did he end so quickly? Got carried off to, into captivity in Babylon with a whole bunch of other people, including Ezekiel. So that's where Ezekiel went into captivity, but his book doesn't start there. Anyone know how many years later the book starts? Well, I, I know why you'd say that. The there's a big puzzle as to why he even mentions 30, but no, it's not 30. <laughs> You've got to go one more verse in the book to get the answer. And when you're holding a baby, you can't do that very easily. Fifth month of the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile. Yeah, the fifth year of his exile. What the 30th was, I don't know. It might have been Ezekiel's 30th birthday. Maybe that's how old he was. But I, I don't know. But... Uh, he starts about five years, which means five years into Zedekiah's reign, but he doesn't count it that way because hey, Zedekiah's back in Jerusalem. He's over in Babylon. So this, you remember this timeline from the book of Jeremiah. Right here in the middle, at 597 B.C. is when 10,000 people were taken captive, including King Jehoiakim and the prophet Ezekiel. And it's... <coughs> 11 years later when most of the rest of them including Zedekiah are taken captive. And our book starts in the 5th year so it's almost halfway down this line. Right about here is where our book begins. And about half the book it, it is written in this period in these 5 or 6 years here left to go before the, uh, the final captivity. And then the second half of the book and, I, and the half is not precise but the second half of the book it is written after here, down in our you know off the screen area after the after the final captivity begins. So here's the outline that Zondervan's put together for us: um, Ezekiel's call and commission, and then judgment against Judah and Jerusalem, and then judgment against the nations, and then final part of the book: preparation for restoration and renewed worship. Um, this morning, we're going to do the first two, except we won't finish the second one. We'll finish the second one next week. Um, that's the, what our schedule shows. So we'll do Ezekiel's call and commission and then the judgment against Judah and Jerusalem. All right, Ezekiel's call and commission, chapter 1, Ezekiel's vision of God, and boy, is this weird. <laughs> um, one of the things that makes... Really, one of the things I think that makes Ezekiel a very interesting book to read are these just strange visions that you get. And the, and the book's full of them all the way to the very end. It's got these strange visions. Um, 
Any, can anyone name me another book in the Bible that has a bunch of strange visions in it? <laughs> the book of Revelation. Yeah, and, and the book of Revelation has a lot of similarities to, similarity to Ezekiel. In fact, it obviously is referring to a number of things in Ezekiel. We'll, we'll look at one or two of those in, in this morning's lesson. Um, any other books that have interesting visions in them that you can think of? Oh, Daniel. Daniel does, yeah. Another book that, that the book of Revelation follows pretty carefully. And there's one other I'm thinking of. One of the Z guys? Yeah, one of the Z guys. <laughs> uh, Zach, Zachariah. Yeah, he, he has some really strange ones. Um, flying carpet in there and um, a basket with a woman in it. I mean, just strange things. Um What's the vision in chapter 1 about? He's being called. Yeah, but what, is it, what's, what's, what does he see? God. He sees God, yeah. Wow. Um, how many times do we have somebody seeing God in the Bible? That's it. This is it? Oh, or did, did I miss something? No, no, no. I, don't, I can't get another. I mean, Moses saw. There was one in Mo with in the book of Exodus. It was more than just what Moses saw. Seventy elders of Israel went up with Moses to the top of the mountain, and they saw a vision of God, and He was standing on this clear pavement. It's not a very well known vision, but it's it's quite important because it's very similar to the others. There, there are some other visions in, of God in the, in the Bible. Anyone name me another one? Yolanda? Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 6. He, he, he gives the year of um, King Isaiah's reign and he saw God in the temple and the train of His robe filled with the temple. I mean, it was just a very dramatic one. That was where He said, woe was me, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and what did they do to solve the unclean lips problem? But took a coal from the altar and put it on his mouth. Solved the problem. <laughs> um, then we have the one here in Ezekiel. There's, there's at least one other very important one. Helen? Yeah, Daniel, uh, where you had the Son of Man going up to the ancient of days and the nations were judged. And then there's one in the New Testament as well. Um, he did see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Yeah, that's you. You don't know. I mean, he doesn't give us any details like this. I'm looking for a vision where you get some details. Um, Revelation chapter four. So, yeah, Revelation is, is going to match Ezekiel and Daniel here with another throne scene. So, and in each of these cases, all the ones we've listed, they have the details. I mean you really get a picture of how separate God is. I mean, see, God's up on this pavement. He's above everybody else. Um, and back when I started the book of Revelation, we went through these throne scenes. This has been several years. We went through the throne scenes and we saw how, in fact, the creation in Genesis chapter 1 is intended also to be a throne scene because the pavement 
in one of these throne scenes, I think it was Exodus, was called a firmament, just like the firmament in Genesis chapter 1. God made a firmament between, you know, He separated the waters and the waters. And so in the, in the Genesis 1 picture, the earth is the temple of God and God Himself is above the firmament up in the sky. And so in, in these throne scenes, we have the color we have for the firmament is blue. Um, and, and blue is a, is a color often associated with God. It was a color often associated even in the tabernacle and the temple with God. And I don't have a color picture, Ralph, so it's, it's black and white, so it's, it, it would be much better if I could find a color picture. But given that I'm not an artist, I get what I can get for free off the Internet. <laughs> I, ha- I did find some color pictures of flying saucers, but <laughs> I don't think we're going to go there. You know, I, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but chapter 1 has been a very popular chapter for, for these people with wild theories to, to sort of mine this and get wild stuff. Back when I was a kid, there was a book called Chariots of the Gods by Eric Fendenikin. And, and he, he kind of had a hodgepodge of different things, some from the Bible, some from other places, where he, he was trying to prove that flying saucers had come down to earth and, and, and all. And so he, he quotes a few things out of this chapter. And, and the big problem with that, the, the, the huge problem with that is that it shows a complete ignorance of what the book of Ezekiel is about. Just total ignorance. I mean, he just pulls this chapter out like, you know, some, some beings from outer space came and visited Ezekiel. It has absolutely nothing to do with, with whatever is in the rest of the book. It just is pretty sad. Um, but, it, I mean, Fenninica didn't really mind playing fast and loose with the facts. I mean, there was things where he, I think he even knew he was doing it and he didn't care. He was just going to sell books. Um, but it still puzzles people today like that. But, the point of the vision is not for us to learn about, you know, flying saucers. The point of the vision is to learn about God's character. And let me see. Well, actually, my next thing I've got to do is a map. I've got to look at where this has happened. And verse 1 is by the river Kibar is where he was. And our map actually has this river Kibar right here. You can see it's a, a southeast of Babylon. Uh, it was actually a canal. Today, it's the Wikipedia says it's silted up today, so I don't guess it has any water in it. But it, it was a canal that they dug for irrigation. They, they, they were bringing in water from the Euphrates River, and they could they could water a lot of this um, of this river plain there, and, and you know farmland because there was hardly any rain in this area. The Euphrates was it. Um, Okay, we already looked at this chart as far as where we're talking about the fifth year. All right, here's the picture. Yeah, I told you you'd be a little bit underwhelmed. Um, black and white. I mean, it needs color. I mean, we've got... Think of the things that are in color in this chapter. We've got fire. We've got um, uh, lapis lazuli in verse 26, which is a very brilliant blue color. Um We've got the rainbow in verse 28. I mean, this needs to be in color. I'm, I really feel bad about this. But um, let's take a look at it. And, and a few other things that's, that's wrong. But this is actually better than anything else I could find. I looked at quite a few different pictures. Uh, and the author, the, the artist here, this is, this is about a 300-year-old picture. It was done in the early 1700s. 
Uh, he's very clear to trying to trying to be accurate to what he can find here. But I don't even I'm not convinced that you can get every detail in a picture. It's, it's just a, such a strange vision. I don't even know if it's possible because um, one of the things that I see is wrong on this is that although he has four different faces here, uh, a human face, a bull, a lion, and an eagle. Each of the four cherubim is supposed to have all four of those faces. So that he, he didn't do that. He's got the four wheels within wheels. Um, so that's good. In the middle, there's supposed to be fire, and I guess if we had any color, it'd be fire. And then this pavement here is, I think the pavement was the, um, no, the throne was color lapis lazuli. Um, I don't know what the pavement color is. I don't see it right here, but um, the wheels are like sparkling barrel, which I looked up barrel. It comes in all different colors, so that that'd be hard to know what color. But um, and and one of the places it says that the wheel, the rims of the wheel. Oh yeah, verse eighteen. The rims rims were lofty and awesome. And these don't look like lofty, awesome rims. So. But that's what they had eyes all yeah eyes all over their wings eyes all over the rims I mean whoa you know we're talking weird but if you think about instead of trying to get the picture which of course you know obviously I'm if I put a picture on the board then I'm trying to give you a picture but if you think about the meaning of it the each of the cherubs goes what direction Uh, direction of the compass. They go. Each chair went straight ahead. He never turned. Straight ahead. And, and, and I think that's the idea of the wheel within a wheel. See, these wheels, which direction will that wheel roll? Any direction you want. It's, it's kind of like these little casters on the bottoms of you know, office chairs. Um, and that was the point. If you think about transportation back in those days, the fastest transportation would be what? A chariot. Yeah. A chariot, yeah. Pulled by horses. Now, so you, you can move along pretty fast, you know, gallop, gallop, gallop. Now you decide you want to turn. How long is it going to take you to turn? With a train of horses. It's... Yeah, I mean, the first thing you do is you got to get the horses. They, they had two, sometimes three horses. You got to get the you got to turn the horses' heads. Okay, now you look where you're going to go, and now you start moving, and, and around you go, and finally you get turned. Not with this chair. This is a chariot. This is what this is intended to represent a chariot of the king. This chariot turns on a dime because every one of these powerful creatures with the wheels going in any direction is ready instantly to go in that direction. In addition to that, you know, I was asking what would be the fastest transportation, but the, the fastest transportation, of course, is a chariot, but there's are, there was faster things in those days, and those were birds. And you think about how fast an eagle flies, and so all these cherubs have wings, and, and this chariot is a flying chariot. This, this is trying to emphasize the fact that God goes wherever He wants instantly. And the eyes all over it are emphasizing the fact that He sees everything. And, and that's, a big, that's a big point in the book of Ezekiel, that people think that what they do inside their houses, you know, God can't see. And so God takes Ezekiel on these visions in here. Dig through this wall. And he digs through the wall. Because these people don't understand that they're being watched all this time. And Ezekiel's there watching what they're doing in their secret rooms. Because uh, God has eyes everywhere. 
And then the other thing about this vision is to emphasize the separation from of God. I mean, these cherub, cherubim are just awesome. I mean, they don't look awesome in this picture, but they're just very awesome. And yet, they are just creatures. They're below this separation, this separating pavement here. God is above. It's not like God's in the sky. He's, he's you know, on the earth, and we're down on the earth. He is separate from us. He is absolutely holy. The, and the, the only thing in this entire picture that would give you a, any impression of the mercy of God would be what? Anyone know about that? There's a rainbow at the end. The color of the rainbow around him, in in verse 28. And so that that would give us some picture of mercy. But the rest of the picture is just absolutely terror striking, awe inspiring. And it's the same that we get with every one of these other ones. When Isaiah saw God, he you know, woe is me. Um, and um, John, of course, was I'm sure he was just awestruck with his vision in Revelation chapter 4 as well. Um, so the whole point of this vision is to try to get people to understand that God is awesome. And, and, and He means what He says. So, we go on to chapter 2 in which God sends, um, sends Ezekiel out. What's He called Ezekiel in verse 1? Son of Man. Son of Man. That's interesting. Um, does he do that again ever in the book? Yes. <laughs> over and over and over. My, my Bible program says that he does it, does it 93 times in the book. Yeah, not, it's, there's no other book comes anywhere close to that. Um, there, in the Old Testament, there there are few other places where the term Son of Man is found. Um, anyone have any some ideas on that? Yeah, Daniel, one like a son of man came up to the throne. And of course, in the New Testament, where would you find this? Jesus, it was Jesus' favorite term to call himself son of man. Yeah. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke is very common. Um, so, then here's in verse 5, here's what he's telling Ezekiel. He's sending him to preach to these people. He's not sending them back to Jerusalem to preach to those people. He's preaching to the people that are. Have already been carried captive, and and he says, as for them, whether they listen or not, this is verse five. For they are a rebellious house; they will know that a prophet has been among them. Well, this is a lot like what God told Jeremiah. You know, they're, they're not going to listen to you, but you have to preach anyway. Um, in verse six, and you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. <laughs> Again, nah, I mean, you read this. How many people here would like to have been Ezekiel? <laughs> what a, I mean, we didn't want to be, we really didn't want to be Jeremiah. Um, and Ezekiel doesn't seem like a real fun job either. But God wanted him. He wanted this witness on earth to tell the people God's will. And this witness has to have a certain kind of character. And that character has to be fearless. No matter what they do to him, because the people don't like to hear this. And when people don't like to hear what you have to say, they try to shut you up. And, and Ezekiel has to be absolutely fearless. He has a message for them and he's going to tell it. 
Then, at the end of the chapter, he brings out a scroll. And then in chapter 3, he tells him to do what with the scroll? Eat the scroll. scroll. How would you like to eat a scroll? How did Ezekiel like it? Hey, it was great. What did it taste like? Honey, wow. Um, Where else in the Bible do you find something like this? Revelation. Only there it was a book. Because they didn't have books in the Old Testament. They had scrolls. But by by John's time they had books. And did did it taste good to John? Well, it it tasted good. Yeah. It tasted good. It was sour. But in his stomach it was bitter. Yeah. A little little addition to it. But obviously the Revelation one is is coming from this. This this is the foundation for that. Um, In verse 7, Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing, willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a, a rebellious house. <laughs> That's an interesting picture. He's got this forehead harder than flint. <clears throat> and so in verse 14, So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I was embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Kibar at Tel Abib, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. Now I mentioned all the other translations instead of saying causing consternation among them, all the other translations say I sat there overwhelmed. The New King James, NIV, uh, English Standard. Um, so I think that's... Well, I'll go with the others. Then in verse 16, at the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. So... If he warns the wicked, the wicked's not going to do anything about it. That, that's, that's the whole point of this chapter. But what happens if he doesn't warn the wicked? Yeah, God will hold him responsible. You warn the wicked, the wicked does nothing about it, I don't hold you responsible. You've done your, your job. On the other hand, if he warns the righteous, what's the righteous going to do? Turn yeah, he'll repent. Because he's warning, he's warning the righteous not not about being righteous, but about sin. I, sorry, I, I should have put that in. There. Um, so the righteous repents of his sin. But if he doesn't warn the righteous, then what happens? The righteous doesn't repent, which is terrible. And then plus, God's going to hold Ezekiel accountable. So obviously, this has application to us today. I mean, God has given us a message for the people around us, and He wants us to be telling them what they need to hear. Whether they listen or not, it's not our job to try to figure out whether whether they will listen, and that's the point he's making to Ezekiel here. Um, let me see, verse twenty-four. The the spirit then entered me and made me stand on my feet, and he spoke with me and said to me, "Go shut yourself up in your house. As for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them, so that you cannot go out among them." I don't know whether that's literal. There's nothing later in the book that indicates that he's literally tied up like this. But the people clearly don't want to hear what he has to say. 
Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be mute and cannot be a man who rebukes them for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Now that part, it seems to be more or less literal in that, because there's references to this later on, how apparently he can't talk for long periods of time. And then when God gives him a message, then he can. And he tells the people what God has told him. Which I'm sure would have been a a pretty memorable thing for those people around to realize here, you know, God has struck this guy dumb, and yet every so often God gives him a message, and wow, what kind of messages they are. But kind of hard on Ezekiel. <laughs> but we we feel bad about for him kind of all the way through. Alright, so then the next section, and we're just gonna do through fifteen if we have time. Um, judgment against Judah and Jerusalem. Okay. Um, so now we have the siege of Jerusalem predicted. But in the book of Ezekiel, you don't just predict things. <laughs> that would be too easy. <laughs> what, is, what does Ezekiel do here for predicting this siege? Well, it's a pantomime. Yeah, he's playing toy soldiers here. He takes this 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 brick, which represents what? Well, it actually represents the whole city of Jerusalem, because this is all in miniature. And he lays siege against it. He builds a siege wall, raises a ramp, battering rams. <laughs> and then, what's he have to get in addition to this? An iron plate. Iron plate. What's he do with the iron plate? Yeah, holds it between him and the brick. So in this picture, Ezekiel represents what? He represents God. And the iron plate represents the fact that God's not going to listen to what Jerusalem asks him. His his eyes are turned away from them. They're going to have to just get captured because you have this big siege going on. Um, Alright, so that's the first sign. And that... I mean that that's gonna make a much bigger effect on people than if he just tells them the story. And and, and I don't know I don't even know whether he could talk during this time. All, all he's told to do is just do these things. But then the next thing in verse four, what's he have to do? Verses four through six. Yeah, Ralph. Lie on his side for how long? Three hundred and ninety days. Yeah. Which represents what? Years. Yeah, 390 years of the iniquity of Israel. Then he turns on to his other side. <laughs> and how long does he lie on the other side? Well, that's a map. 40. 40 days, yeah. Now, I assume that this is not day and night. I assume that this is only at nighttime he does this, but I could be wrong. I mean, maybe he was, maybe he was so bad, in such bad shape, he actually couldn't leave his bed for that time. But apparently the people know this is going on. And so then he's on the other side for 40 days. And that represents the 40 years of the iniquity of Judah. Now, before anybody asks me, let me just tell you, none of the commentators know what these numbers really mean. I mean, every commentator you read has a different idea. And every one of the ideas that you read, you're going to say, uh, I don't know. 
So I'm not going to give you any ideas. I'll just tell you. It's just a problem. I will say, though, that when the Greek people translated it, or the Greek-speaking Jews translated it into Greek, what do we call that translation? Septuagint. Septuagint. They changed the number to 190. And my guess is, they couldn't figure out what the 390 meant either, and they thought 190 would be easier to work with. <laughs> it's only easier on Ezekiel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been easier on Ezekiel. You'd rather lay down for 190 days. <laughs> Verse 8 says he's, he's going to be tied with ropes so, for that entire... Or it implies the entire... Period. Yeah, and I, I take that to be... Uh, symbolic ropes, but yeah, it could be it could be night and day. I really don't know. Um, yeah, I may just be being trying to be too kind to him, let him off during the day. Yeah, well, just, it, did, it does make mention of him preparing different things too, which he could well. Yeah, unless unless we're a couple years later, because 390 days it goes over a year. Well, yeah, specified like eight ounces of this. With grain and a uh, pint and a half of water. Yeah, what what's that symbolize? What's he acting out here? The people inside the city are going to are going to starve. They're, they're having to be very careful how much they eat because they're running out of food. And of course, we know that from the book of Jeremiah, especially from Lamentations. We know that it got really terrible for them. <clears throat> And so he, he, in verse 9, you know, as you take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Anyone ever heard of Ezekiel bread? <laughs> this is where it comes from, which uh, it just seems to me be rather amusing that people today would want to eat the diet that he was told to eat to represent the hardships of a siege. <laughs> but Christmas is pretty well balanced. I mean, it's got all kinds of different things in it. So if you, if you eat more than just the 20 shekels a day by weight, you might do okay. <laughs> I think that's a, a sprouted bread, so that, that would be interesting. Okay, well, I, I know that when I looked for images of Ezekiel to find that picture we did before, I found several pictures of loaves of bread as well. <laughs> oh, you can get a Hanover. Okay, all right. Um, let me see if I got any more from this chapter. Oh, yeah, I do. Um, yeah, in verse twelve, you shall eat it as a barley cake having baked it in their sight over human dung. Then the Lord said, Thus will the sons of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I banished them. And Ezekiel asked to be let off from that one, and God was nice and let him off from that. Um, and then in chapter 5, Jerusalem's judgments are predicted. Well, again, he's not going to break them in any, just in the ordinary way. He has to act it out. So what does the acting out involve in this chapter? Sword and chops up hair. Yeah, he takes a sh sword and he shaves himself with this sword. <laughs> shaves his head. Now he gets a bunch of hair and he weighs it. And the weighing is so he can divide it into equal amounts. How many amounts? Three. Three. What's he do with the first third? Burns it. Yeah, I assume he puts it on the little brick in the middle of the city here and he burns it right there. That's because it had to burn in the center of the city. What's he do with the second third? Chops it up with the sword. Yeah, he scatters around the city and whacks it with his sword, chopping it up. What's he do with the third third? Throws it into the wind. Throws it to the wind, and off it goes. But God says, I will unsheathe the sword behind them. Then, but there's a few. Somehow he saved a few. What's he do with a few in verse 3? Binds it up in his robe. 
Yeah, so he saves a very few, binds them in his robe. But, from some of those, what does he do? <laughs> Takes some of them out and throws them in the fire, and so he doesn't have very much left. What's left represents the people that are going to survive this whole siege. The ones that God is going to save out of this. Um, in verse 9, he explains, Because of your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. And he describes how terrible it's going to be. So verse 12, One-third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One-third will fall by the sword around you. And one-third I will scatter to every wind and I will unsheathe the sword behind them. Alright, chapter 6. Judah's idolatry will be punished. In verse 5, I will also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their idols and I will scatter your bones around your altars. Um, in Ezekiel, the primary sin covered is idolatry. Other sins are mentioned just in, in passing. It's, just, it's all about idolatry. The fact that God was their God and they had forsaken Him for idols. And that's why the, the book begins with this awesome picture of God. And over and over in the book, we just see idolatry. Now, of course... Every prophet that you have in the Old Testament talks about idolatry, but it seems like Ezekiel just really specializes in it. That's what they're being punished for. Um, let me see here. Verse 7, The slain will fall among you and you will know that I am the Lord. That phrase, know that I am the Lord, does that occur again in the book? A lot of times. Again, I got my Bible program to count it. 63 times that phrase has occurred. This is the very first one in the book, but 63 times before we're done. And, interesting enough, it's, it's occasionally in other books. Um, and I was challenging Linda this morning at the breakfast table if she could name what, what book came in second, and she got it. I was very impressed. Uh, the book of Exodus comes in second, nine times in the book of Exodus. <laughs> Um, well, did you have for breakfast? Did you have Ezekiel bread? We didn't have Ezekiel bread, no. no we, we did have biscuits made out of wheat, but they didn't have lentils in them, I don't think. <laughs> um, verse 9, Then those of you who escape will remember Me among the nations to which they will be carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from Me, and by, the, by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols, and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. That's the goal of all this, to try to turn them away from their idolatry. Then in verse 11, Thus says the Lord God, Clap your hands, stamp your foot, and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel which will fall by the sword, famine, and plague. I did just find that interesting. He's not only telling Ezekiel what to say, but he's telling him the kind of motions to make while he's saying and what and the point he's trying to make is get this across emotionally this is so serious you know stamp your foot i mean just let them you know like pound the pulpit sort of thing let them know this is really really bad so and i and i'm sure ezekiel went into this wholeheartedly um, the whole point of eating the scroll and how it was honey in his mouth is is saying that he agreed with god's words and he does. And he goes after, although sometimes he's, 
he's a little bit shocked with how far God is going, as we'll, we'll see here. Um, all right, chapter 7, the end will come to Judah. Verse 14, they have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but no one is going to the battle, for my wrath is against all their multitude. Yeah, the trumpet was sounded to bring out the troops going to battle, but when they blow the trumpet in Jerusalem, people are too terrified even to fight. It's going to be that bad. And verse 19, they will fling their silver into the streets and their gold will become an abhorrent thing. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can they fill their stomachs, for their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. And again, in the siege of Jerusalem, what good would gold and silver do you? It's food you need. And nobody's going to sell you food for gold or silver that they need to eat it themselves. Now, another vision. <laughs> Chapter 8. Um, in, um, in verse 3, this man that appeared to him was the same, guy, same man that was in chapter 1. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of the head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the God, idol of jealousy which provokes the jealousy was located. Now Jerusalem was at least a two-month journey from where he was at the river Kibar. But of course in the vision, the Spirit could get him there really fast. Now, um, here, here is a map of Solomon's temple, which this was Solomon's temple that, that he was being taken to, to visit. Which side of the temple did he come on first? The north. The north. Okay, so that's on the top part of our map. And... Um, it's a gate. Now, when it says gate, you have to understand there's two courts here. There's an inner court and there's an outer court. The inner court had only one gate and that's to the east. You see these stairs going up to it here. Um, inside the inner court, only the priests and the Levites were allowed. Ordinary, well, I take it back. Um, now, yeah, ordinary uh, Jewish men who were clean were allowed in here. The women weren't allowed in here. Um, but outside the court, other, I think in anyone, that this is Solomon, so I think anyone was allowed in the outer court. And they had more gates. Now this one only shows one gate, but apparently there was a gate on the north, which in this chapter is called the altar gate. It would have been called that because it was closest to the altar. So you could go through that gate, but you couldn't get to the altar because you'd have to go around and come in the front on the east side. But the reason he took them on the north side is because of what was there. And it, in verse 5, there was an idol of jealousy there. So here they are, and apparently, I think they're just north of the gate. I think just basically outside the temple. They've put an idol. It just shows the attitude here. Here's this temple to God, but they're putting their idols right there. But, he says at the end of verse 6, but yet you will see still greater abominations. It's going to get worse. Uh, and he's still to see it. So in verse 10, he, he, well, he digs a hole through the wall and comes in. And in verse 10, he behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things, which with all the idols of the house of Israel, they were carved in the wall all around. And standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel, and they were worshiping this. Um, <coughs> 
Verse 12, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images, for they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. God does see because He has eyes all around. Um, and then He talks about what the women are doing. And then in verse 16, He brought me into the inner court. So here we are in this area here in front of the temple. Um, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, so this, this little area here between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men. And what direction were they facing? <coughs> East. And what were they worshiping? The sun. The sun. Here they are right in the temple, but they're worshiping the sun instead of worshiping God. And of course, God is greatly offended by that behavior. <coughs> so, we now have the vision of slaughter in chapter 9. This is the same vision. It's, it's, it's a continuing vision. Uh, he's still in Jerusalem. And he, uh, he says, Draw near, O this is God, draw near, O executioner of the city, each with his destructive weapon in his hand. And so there's six, six men plus another guy, six men that are going to be the executioners. Another guy, what's the last guy doing? He has a forehead marker. Yeah, he's got a pen. He goes around and he marks people's foreheads. Who gets their forehead marked? The righteous. The righteous do, yeah. Where else in the Bible do you find something like this? Well, there is a mark in Revelation. In Revelation, in chapter 7, don't destroy the people until I've had a chance to go around and seal all the righteous. He doesn't call, talk, call about marking them, but sealing them. <clears throat> but very simple. And the, the marking in the Revelation is actually the mark of the beast. The beast wants to do... He, he's always trying, trying to copy what God does. So he marks all his people. Um, but you don't want that mark. <laughs> um, although it would make your life easier for you if you had that mark because you couldn't buy or sell if you didn't have the mark. Alright, so then in verse um, 4, well, we already did verse 4. Go put, put the mark. Um, in verse 6, Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you should start from where? My sanctuary. My sanctuary. Now, where have we been reading recently in one of our classes about starting from God's sanctuary? Exactly, yeah. In Peter, uh, it's 1 Peter 4.17. If judgment is going to start at the house of God, where will the ungodly and unrighteous appear? Where does Peter get this idea of judgment starting at the house of God? He gets it from here. That's right. <laughs> this is what it, this is what Peter's phrase is based on. So then, in verse eight, as they were striking the people, and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out, saying, "Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem?" And what's his answer? Basically, his answer is yes. <laughs> But he goes into detail. He says, They say, The Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see me. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Um, Alright, so chapter 10, the vision of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. Um, then I looked and behold in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone, Again, a very deep blue color. In appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. 
So now we've got God above them. And he, um, he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. So the fire of God is going to be used for judgment here. And we've seen from very early on, God uses fire to symbolize Himself. Um, And then down in verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. So now God is doing the unthinkable. He is leaving His temple. The people thought they were safe. Hey, we we got the temple of the Lord. Remember that phrase? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The prophet is saying, don't keep saying that. It's not going to save you. Now they're getting the vision. God is leaving the temple. So He doesn't care what happens to the temple after that. He's not in it. And then in chapter 11, we have judgment on the evil leaders. So we're still in the same vision. The Spirit lifted him up and brought him to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward, and there were 25 men. He doesn't say what they're doing, except in verse 2, they're devising iniquity and giving evil advice in this city. And they're saying, is the time near to build houses? It is not the time near to build houses. This city is the pot and we are the flesh. And apparently this phrase is... is um, because God is opposed to this phrase later on in the chapter. Um, and different commentators take it different ways, but I think one way that makes a lot of sense is that we've got, they, they're basically saying we've got to resist the Babylonians. We're like in a pot. We're being cooked, but, but it's, it's time for us to fight. And of course, Jeremiah had been telling them the whole time, you've got to give up to the Babylonians. You cannot fight against them. But these people are giving the advice, this, we're going to stay here we're, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're being cooked. We're going to stay here, and the rest of the chapter, God says, "No, you're not staying there. I'm taking the meat out of the pot." <laughs> so, verse eleven, yeah, this city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it. But I will judge you to the border of Israel. <clears throat> and then it came about in verse thirteen that he saw Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, dying. And what was Ezekiel's view on that? Again, he's about the yeah, alas, you know, there's going nobody left. And, and the Lord's answer is, um, verse 15, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them, and he's talking about the people that were in captivity at that time, not back in Jerusalem, all of them are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. So people that were still on the land, their attitude was, we're going to stay here. You, you guys may have been taken captive. Too bad for you. We're staying here. And God says, no, you're not staying there. In verse 17, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you. I, he's, now He's talking about the people that have been taken captive, that already taken captive. I will assemble you out of the countries from, among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Basically, the roles are going to reverse. The ones left in Jerusalem, God's going to kick out. 
the ones that are already taken captive, he's going to bring back. When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. Who was one of the leaders of people when they came back? Nehemiah and Ezra. Nehemiah and Ezra, yes. And of course, they worked hard to get rid of all the abominations. Um, and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And they may walk in my, that they may walk in my statutes to keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. So then in verse 23, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. So now God not only has left the, left the temple, He's left the whole city. And finally, verse 25, then I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. And we've got to stop there. Appreciate everyone's help this morning.